Tearing across the Vox waves of Innsmouth Hive like screaming skulls of obsidian wreathed in green hellfire, we are the Bolter Wine of Acoustic Mayhem 665.66 UHMR Chemrat Radio. Coming to you live tonight from Ricketts Gravboards. Because who doesn't need a hobby? And a death trap. Speaking of death traps, the Corridor 54 killer has struck again leaving a trio of headless administratum marshals outside the Arbides Hall of Justice on sub-level two. Oof, that's almost personal. Man, I swear every time we think he's gone, he just comes on back. He just keeps coming. Again and again? Keeps keeps popping up everywhere. It's like a show that's been canceled a couple of times, and you just... Wait, they're well. making more? <laughs> As my grandpappy once said, a little arson in the morning goes a long way. I am your neon-crested axe aficionado, Goblin King. Joining me is your co-pilot, the mauler maniac of sublevel 999 himself, Marky. What it is, hose? Helping us ply the endless insanity of the underhive, it's the chain fist maestro of the frost hollow himself, Chuckerfly. Just a little bit of ice if you start bleeding, just snort some more. And clog it up. It's like like a coagulant. Yeah, yeah. It'll clot. Uh, clotting, clotting warp dust is clotting powder. And yes. our source for all things that give you teeth, the purveyor of all of the red squig we can consume in the field, it's Kev. Red squig! <laughs> what, what do they call that stuff? Quick clot? Like clot. <laughs> yeah. Just powdered warp stone. Just fucking <laughs> quick, quick. Quick stone, quick, quick dust, quick dust, <laughs> quick dust. I think in Warhammer, the gangers would probably just call it plug dust. Plug dust. Like yeah, it's a, plug your plug your holes. Plug your in holes. the Felix and Gotrick novels, they a lot of it deals with like the Skaven and different warp stuff. So they they talk about warp stone a lot, and the fact that like people crush warp stone up and they put it in their snuff box, like they mix it with tobacco. Yeah, and they're like, awesome. why? Why do I have a tentacle growing out of my chest? And it's like, well, maybe it's because you're fucking ingesting warp stone. I have, I have a theory. Drugs, <laughs> drugs. drugs, and then the great, and then the great part is the Skaven just fucking eat it, and like nothing happens to them. They're just like, yeah, it's fine, whatever. Just rub it in your eyes, it's fine. Yeah, I feel Are like the Skaven like just immune to it, or is their tolerance really high? Because I know they get fucked up eventually. So from the episode one of Under the Realms of Madness, go back a couple weeks I remember, if you want to listen I, to that. No, I was there for it. I remember we talked about it. I, I, I was just don't talking remember to the, the, I was talking oh, to the, the listeners, Kevin. I was talking right. to the listeners. Right. I thought you were talking to me. I'm like, <laughs> I was there, Gandalf. I was there three episodes ago. <laughs> I was there, Gandalf. <laughs> But I, I think since Beastmen and Skaven were born of Warpstone meteors, I think that yeah, I think they've got like a higher tolerance essentially. Yeah, because like I know the the Beastmen can get like more fucked up and corrupted. And oh yeah, that, the Skaven can too because the Skaven yeah, and the, uh, there are all kinds of Nurgle plague Skaven and stuff like just, that. It's just like taking a you know a protein shake or some kind of high end uh, you know testosterone or something. I guess right. Yep. Yeah. I, I take I take my warpstone supplement every morning. <laughs> what if there's like a warpstone butt plug, you know, like the little gem? I was about to say thing? I thought you took your warpstone whenever daddy told you to bend over. <laughs> uh, like you you've seen those the, the little gems? <laughs> mhm. Uh, but it's warpstone. Warp <laughs> seen, <laughs> seen one. There's probably 
at least no. Are you looking that up right no, now? No, I'm just looking up warp stone. I'm looking over my shoulder because because that's the direction that it at least this many exist. <laughs> this many plus only are, the patrons get to see how many butt plugs Kevin has. <laughs> wow, Kevin, that's a lot of butt plugs. How do you even sit? I just <laughs> I never said they were for mine. <laughs> uh, I am <man>. married. <laughs> So they're uh, hers, but they're for you. So again, how do you even sit? There, no. Scroll, scroll. <laughs> they have down the, a little bit. Look, hey, we share. Right this is an photo. equal household. Right there. Okay, there you go. This one right there, Marky. That's sick. So yeah, they have like those that's, training that's, butt that's plugs. Dope. You know, you can walk around with them. And mm. like, so that it looks a fall little your pointy. But I did like how it did have the tickler on that one. Oh, that one's wow. got a tickler too. Wow. You're just mad that I was able to work that into the joke. No, no, I'm I'm surprised. I'm just I'm I'm in awe of what's going on here. Uh, that one's ribbed for pleasure. That's that's a good wow. one. You see we got the purity seal going on. We don't. That's the oh. thing. There is no purity seal at the moment. Episode, I think the whole I episode is purity seal. We should just just should just purity seal the whole channel. <laughs> I hear just it's kidding. a cure for hemorrhoids. You know, shrinks hemorrhoids. Warp stone. Warp stone. Yeah. Did did you did your friendly local clan <laughs> Molder tell you that? <laughs> yes, yes. Warp stone's good for hemorrhoids. Yes, yes. <laughs> just sit on this pillow. It will fix you up. Does it mean does it mean the the warp stone is warm? <laughs> Sure. I would imagine uh, it feels like holding uranium. Oh my god! I was gonna yeah, say it's probably. probably like radiation. Yeah. Yeah. Probably, probably feels warm. You ever put your face does next that, to a microwave? Make, probably something similar. I felt radiation. Does that make Mordenheim the analog for uh, Chernobyl? Uh, I I mean, it <laughs> happened in 1999. So, is that the is that the analog that they drew? Because I mean, almost everything in Warhammer has a, a you know, because it's always like some kind of parody of, of current. Warpstone well, is but something. Warpstone is definitely like 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 uranium, like Marvel like, comic version of what radiation does. Yeah, because real radiation just makes all just your teeth fall you. out and you it die. Just, just you die. Yeah. There's you no don't this... grow extra limbs and like create <laughs> crazy pseudoscience gadgets. Oh man, my, when my dad explained that to me, I was so like sad as a child. You're like, yeah, <laughs> like, you can't you gamma. He's you like, can't no, gamma ray just... burst yourself. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, no, radiation it doesn't it doesn't give you new things. It just destroys DNA and then it yeah. falls apart from there. Why am I bleeding out bad. of my asshole? Because oh, you're no. sitting on a warp stone. <laughs> so plug. So but my hemorrhoids guys, are gone. You guys are talking about this like, oh yeah, just sit on a warp stone thing, and that's that. Oh, it reminded me of this story that I read because uh, out of one wow. of my dad's books when he was working at the nuclear power plant. Like some I was like, where are we going here? No, <laughs> no. Got some old smut from his pops. No, no. Yeah, um, that's it was, the best uh, kind of smut, like cautionary smut. tales of radiation and nonsense like that. So essentially, this guy went and put a, uh, a part of an X-ray in his back pocket. Didn't know that it was, you know, incredibly radioactive because this is early, early days of X-ray uh, technology so, and stuff. So his butt sloughed and his, off. his ass fell off. Literally, his ass fell off, like in a matter of hours. Oh wow! So, so you could say he had no ass at all. Yeah, no ass at all. <laughs> so I, I don't know. I don't know if you've ever seen this, but 
like it's crazy like to, and then to think like oh yeah these guys are just like oh here let me take this warp stone like it's like oh yeah. yep that somebody would totally do that and then they well, would people get did. a tentacle growing out of their butt <laughs> Pe- people 100 percent like like back in the day people would take fucking radiation pills because it was good for you you know it, because we didn't know no yeah. i'm safe i have my lead armor i'm safe <laughs> my, my asbestos blind I got my asbestos hey. it's the besties so have you guys ever have you guys ever seen this diagram where it's like it's like a radiation pool and it describes like where the danger is and you would think like all of the water is no most of the radio water is less radioactive than the air outside oh, yeah. the pool just don't get near the rods. <laughs> like Absolutely. you're fine until you're near the rods. <laughs> yeah, actually, uh, a guy fell in one of the pools at San Onofre once. Yeah, and I, they, um, they sent him home in an entire suit made out of paper. I uh, I <laughs> used to have a buddy who worked um, contamination cleanup for ready uh, for, for reactors. San and uh like they moved he never stayed at one. They moved him all uh, around. Okay. And when he, he probably was at, followed the outages. Um, the, the way that the company worked was they deployed you for six months to certain regions. Oh, well, yeah, but that's probably during the outage. Uh, maybe. They probably contract um, extra cleanup crews during the refueling process, which is what an outage is. Oh, uh, maybe. I don't know. But he said at one point when he was at San Onofre, somebody dropped a wrench into the tank and they were like, we're not getting it. Well, it, like that, that, I that remember, my dad there. told me something about that. And it was just like it was the biggest nightmare because it's like, well, the only way to, to get it out is to shut it down. Yeah, they had to shut. They would have to shut the reactor down. Yeah, and and the, like the cleanup guy, the cleanup guys were like, "We're just not going to get it." Like that's the answer. The answer that's is the answer no is one's going to go leave get it. There. it. We're just yeah, going to leave it there until we have to refuel the whole reactor and take it apart yep. for maintenance, anyways. So it's that guy's just like, stay "That's there. my favorite wrench." That's my fucking my favorite fucking wrench, man. Dude, I just spent thirty five dollars on that fucking wrench. Why can't I get it back? My wife bought me that wrench for our anniversary. That's my special. Dropped it. That's my special Black and Decker Cobalt wrench or whatever other. I get it it painted after my favorite football team. Like, come on, man. That's that's my dual purpose butt plug wrench. That's my warp stone butt plug wrench. Oh my god! <laughs> my butt stone. My wrench. warp. My warp stone assisted butt plug wrench. That's when you don't have any more room on your tool this belt. Is, you this is this is like the, the absolute oh, longest fuck around time before the actual <laughs> intro. It's actually episode six point nine five right now. Right, right. I'm trying. I'm right. I'm still still wound so up from welcome. last time. So welcome to Tales from the Hive, the Rot Wars. In this episode, we will reveal some of the methods and tools we used in crafting the narrative behind Jim Dark's first community campaign, The Rot Wars. If you guys aren't aware of what that is, and you are listening to us now in April of 2023 run on over to our discord server and get involved today if you guys have found this later on the missions should be available for you guys to access and play anytime you want in 10th edition or 11th edition or 13th edition whatever edition it is and we have made a commitment that all of our streamed games as we talk about stream games throughout the episode all those streamed games will turn into vod's and those vods i can't we're supposed to video on demand vods all those vods those vod's whatever the fuck i'm supposed to say those will all end up on our youtube page so you can check that stuff out and you can catch up with, on what these guys have done on stream but 
We hope you're hearing it in April of 2023 and you'll run on over and get involved in the community campaign because the more players we have, the more epic it will be. That is correct. Well, a lot of, uh, yes, yes, that is correct. Um, sorry, Chuck. <laughs> I derailed you. Sorry. That's, it's, it's cool. I, I tend to do that with you. Well, there are a lot of structured examples, talks, and tips out there when it comes to crafting a campaign or setting up a narrative crusade. It can also be extremely daunting to start. Much like any other style of creative writing, the endless expanse of possibility and blank space is both a blessing and an absolute fucking curse. Even in writing the notes for this episode, with a lot of the knowledge of the campaign in mind, we all found it hard to really sit down and define what makes up the first few steps of the process. Something we could define and lay out to help you guys when you get about designing your own campaigns. Yep. It is a little little difficult to start coming up with with ideas out of nowhere. Yeah. And and the best usually is to brainstorm with your group. You know, even if you're, you know, say you're going to take it to your like local shop, but you've got a couple of guys that play with each other. Like you've got like your close knit circle that plays at the shop. Get those two or three people. You know, sit down at Denny's after a game night or, you know, Arby's or whatever. Taco local, shop, local whatever gentleman's club, whatever you want. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> local gentleman's club, the steakhouse, you know, wherever it is. Uh, the whiskey and cigars. However you sit around after your game and then just kind of start brainstorming ideas. And that's, that's really how we started. Chuck and I and Marky and Tom uh, and even, I mean, re- realistically, everybody except Matt had like some ideas <laughs> he's thrown ideas in for the system everybody except matt <laughs> matt's our matt is very much our like we rely on him for rules guys uh we're just teasing him he's right, got to all- have the he's got to have the parchment in hand already written for him yeah yeah we all sat down and we just kind of started throwing ideas at the wall and, and sort of saw what stick but you know there is a process to it and as we've talked in past creative writing episodes, past tales from the hive um, episodes and stuff like that. We kind of try to lay out what that process is. We floundered around a lot, which definitely helps that brainstorming session. If, if there is a rule zero that is outside the five steps we'll talk about that rule zero is brainstorming with your friends and realistically take these five steps and then toss them into that brainstorming session. Mm Mm-hmm. The process can be broken down into a basic outline of five steps. The theme, the world building, the campaign structure, scenarios and story arcs, and lastly, the end game. While we will focus on how to apply these to designing Warhammer 40k Crusade narratives and use the development of our own community campaign as a living example, we did try to design this outline in a way that it could be used for any war or skirmish game or even your tabletop role-playing games or any other story design game that you might be working on or any other game with story design elements you might be working on. Yeah, so like the theme. What what is our theme? Just having a good time and... uh, I mean, it's really what it is. It's having a good time and getting everybody to play and uh, like always, Chaos versus Imperium is the main thing. (laughs) And that, and that's really how that is the main story for Warhammer. But yeah, you know, we'll get into some examples here in a second, but it really is one of those things like you can, the theme doesn't have to be directly tied to the mechanics of the game. No. So Chuck, as you brought up, the first step is the theme. And although we could 
also easily refer to this as the genre of the campaign. So you could say theme or genre, depending on what you're doing. And genre might be a word that helps unlock more possibilities for you if you're designing something that isn't necessarily for Warhammer 40k. Depending on how you're looking to develop your own campaign, this is the first step in deciding at times what game system you might be playing. As an example, you might decide on a high fantasy theme at this stage. And that would, if we had done that, that would have switched us to looking at Age of Sigmar or possibly the old world of Warhammer as a mechanic base for the game right off the bat. However, the theme or genre does not have to have any impact on the game system. Uh, it can be any of the other game systems that are out there and taking all the factions and deciding the best, the ones that you like running with them. Right. Your own stories within that universe. With the Rot Wars, the game system and the mechanics we're using is the ninth edition of Warhammer 40k. So we know the rules and we know that one of the overall themes, as Chuck pointed out, is going to be war. Epic conflict between one, between two, I should say, or more sides. But we could shift the lens of that theme pretty easily. It could be set in the Horus Heresy, for example, which brings about its own set of overtones and themes. Or it could be a tale of Eldari Corsairs and Trukari Raiders plaguing a Tau spacing lane, allowing us to play with pirate themes if we wanted to run a pirate 40k campaign. Much like how Kill Team Galadark has focused on intense firefights between ragged survivors in a decayed space hulk, which implies lots of post-apocalyptic themes. Or how setting a campaign during the events of the Siege of Vrax allows players to really get into the themes of trench warfare and things that surrounded both the first and second world war. Yeah, themes can really be like the area where you can have fun with it, I think. You know, the the theme of, you know, endless orcs is always fun, endless tyranids, and then you have your the little last side of stand. Ju- yeah, the last stand theme, which is always a fun one. And you don't always yeah. <clears throat> have to just pick one and go ham on one. You can treat it like a multi entree. You know, three entree plate from a Chinese takeout, and you can go, okay, we're going to take some endless orcs and we're going to put it on top of some of this over here. And yeah, yeah, mix and match, take what you want. And then you can also, you can also apply themes to the scenarios themselves, which we'll we'll get into a little bit later on. But a really classic example of a theme being applied to a game that kind of like like the game stays completely the same but the entire like tone of it shifts would be the i think it's called innistrad now but it used to be raven no no it is ravenloft innistrad is the magic the gathering version so ravenloft in D, you know dungeons and dragons is very much this high fantasy concept game and all this stuff it was very very much you know, elves, dwarfs, orcs, Tolkien fantasy. It was very, very much J.R.R. Tolkien, Lord of the Rings fantasy. Mm-hmm. You know, however you want to slice it, that's really what the core D&D experience was. When Ravenloft came out, Ravenloft put this entire dark gothic vampire theme over the entire game. It was still D&D. There were still dwarves, there were still elves, there were still classes, there was still leveling up, there was still adventure paths. Everything mechanically stayed the same. However, now everything was underneath this like vampire overlord tone, which changed the theme of the game without changing the game itself. 
And in a lot of ways, that's what we're doing with the Rot Wars, because we're leaning very deeply into the grim, dark, and horror themes of the Warhammer world of the 42nd millennium. An easy fit for the stories our group has often found that we have a tendency to brainstorm or tell as we're talking. You know, the, the last stands, the, the endless horde games kind of fall into more of the horror side, more of the grim, dark side. The name itself also implies that there will be a little bit of Nurgle grossness from cultists and poxwalkers to zo- uh, Markies. To z- I almost said to zombies' favorite Markie. To, zomb- <laughs> to Markies' favorite zombies and the plague of unbelief. We have a lot to play with just from the word association of the Rot Wars. Secondly, since this campaign is designed to allow those in our community to play alongside the campaign games being played on stream by us, We have a theme of massive battles. So just as Kevin said, you know, we didn't just pick horror. We picked horror and epic battles. We were really focusing on the actions that are happening on a different planet or in a different theater of combat are going to have implications across the entire sector. Which when everyone else plays not on the stream and inputs or scores will affect things going on with our games. Yeah. And vice versa. As these guys play out major story beats through the stream, we may get rid of an entire narrative branch that you guys will never even hear about. You you guys will get the story, you'll get the lore dump, but there could be stuff that we pull in that we unbolt from our structure based on how the games on stream go. So it'll it'll it it it, it flows both ways. However, it's mostly designed and, Chuck, you've done a really good job designing most of it to be like whatever they do in, impacts you guys. Yeah. Makes your guys' yeah, life funny. harder. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, hey, that's what we're here for. Yeah. So we don't have to design even a Warhammer 40k campaign to rely on massive battles spanning parts of a solar system or even a subsector. You could very easily work in a smaller environment looking at only the battles of one world. And nothing says you have to stick to the 40k rule set. You can bounce to Kill Team for smaller games or utilize Battlefleet Gothic for large fleet battles. So even within the campaign or the Crusaders telling, you don't necessarily have to do Crusade rules or match one play system. rules. You know, yeah, exactly. So we're sticking to one rule set. That doesn't mean that what you guys design has to stick to one rule set. You could even design your Crusade and Campaign narratives, as I just mentioned, to follow along with and affect a role-playing game session that you might be running in a system like Dark Heresy or Only War. And the cool part is it's going to affect the whole story. And that's the aim. The aim is how do you lay enough groundwork? How do you set up enough of a sandbox that there's a consistent flow to the game? Matched play has its own reward system and narrative play has its own reward system. And the reward system and narrative play is going through the process of building that story with somebody. Yeah. The one nice thing about 40 K and ninth edition, which hopefully transfers over to the new edition of 40 K is the whole crusade system and how it has like a, essentially a template for you to work with. And you can stick with that template or stray away from the template as much as you want. That's kind of the, the freedom that you have. So if you feel like the task of creating your own, you know, campaign is daunting, you always have the crusade system to fall back on as a template as like a foundation. Um, yeah. 
for people that have been playing forever, you know, sticking to the same template for 20 something years or the same system for 20 something years, you're just kind of like, Oh, I want to try something new, which is why like things like endless orcs or, you know, last stands or, uh, you know, uh, crazy warp storm fights where, uh, you know, random, random events happen. Things blow up. Meteors fall from the sky. The board gets smaller from, you know, warp storms, like crap like that. Yeah, exactly. Where you didn't tell us about, uh, having that one explodable tank behind the wall yeah, <laughs> and then you, you teleported in the commandos or whatever and shot it up and blew a hole in the wall. That was pretty cool. Yeah. Things, yeah, things so that just, aren't even like in the rules like that you just exactly. want to include yeah. that are cool. Yeah. That's great for narrative play to mix it up. Yeah. Things where you can cross the line from 40 K generic rules to more of like RP, not RPG, uh, RP style play yeah. where there's a you know a game master and the game master's like you know i'm gonna roll a d20 and uh, you know on a 15 or higher there's gonna be a, a battle barge up. falling out of the sky and it's gonna blow up half of the field or something you know anything on that side of the field is dead takes 100 mortal wounds you know so, something, <laughs> something something gnarly dumb. to where exactly where it's just like holy hell dude like that that shit was crazy like mm-hmm. creating those memories or those you know those games Those story where, beats exactly yeah. where uh you know it's just different it's something different that you get to get a taste of that you wouldn't normally get from 40k again when you play 40k for years and years on end eventually you know playing 2000 points of uh you know this versus that in jumping on an objective gets a little old i guess to some maybe not all but you know some people like the to throw a little story in there, change things up or have things surprise them where you don't, you don't normally get to taste that. Uh, I know when Tom and I were playing every week for like two, three years on end, literally every week. So we'd play like one, two games every week, Friday nights. And it just, we did that for years and even just doing it over those few years that we did, uh, having something to change it up was always nice. Yeah. I mean, yeah. The one good thing about Games Workshop is they're pretty on top of updating rules, especially as of recent. And so when you do that, it changes things up and you get a little fresh taste of, you know, something new. But again, it's it's nice to have some wild thing happen. I know when I played Ryan and we had the uh the game with Eisenhorn and you know stuff <laughs> jumping right. down and it was just like you know crazy little stuff like that it, you build those memories and it's nice yeah and there's nothing to say that you can't have a match play game in that structure that in fact the way that we've structured our community campaign you guys will notice with the first mission that you've had play and the first mission these guys are about ready to jump into they're essentially matched play games. We are starting off with a 2,000 point versus 2,000 point army. We're starting off with defined missions. We're using the ninth edition rules. We're using the, the Nephilim uh, battle, that grand tournament. What do they call the books? The grand tournament books? Yeah, the, like battle like that, sector. Yeah. That's the jumping off point. And it makes sense in the way that we're telling the story. But it doesn't necessarily mean that the next mission is going to be matched play for you guys or for these guys. It means, you know, you bring in that that flavor. So you can, as you design your campaigns, and we'll talk about this when we get into 
the the um, campaign structure, you can say, okay, well, every you know the first game and every third game after, or the first game and the last game, or the first game and the fourth game, or what, however you design it, is going to be just a match play game. You can kind of flow in and out and change things up as you do it. So the next step in the process is world building. No matter what setting and theme you are going to use, there is always a bit of world building that needs to go into the process. Even when setting out to use the crusade rules, most often players will at least choose an area or the conflict their armies are fighting in. So even if you just say, okay, we're going to do a crusade, we're going to use the rule book, you guys are probably going to be like, and we're setting it in the Badab War, or we're selling, setting it during the fall of Ball. You're going to pick something that acts as the world-building step. It could be off the shelf. It could be something you come up with. This is a dangerous step because it can be tempting to flesh out the entire world you're going to be playing in. We talk about world building quite often on the podcast. It's a very core tool that we all use, and it's used in all sorts of the creative writing process that we try to outline and show to you guys. In this case, knowing what is enough to start, though, is incredibly important. Generally, it's best to start off small. What factions are going to be involved? What overall goal might each have? Is there an overarching overarching antagonist, or does each faction act as an antagonist to all the others? Where will the story events take place? Where will the story arcs play out? Having major details mapped out so they can be referred to is important. Say you might want to toss in a relic of some long-lost guard regiment as an objective. Knowing that the planet of Delos Prime is within the sector might be important to the narrative. Knowing the mating rituals of the Delos Longfish, probably not important to the campaign that you're running. So you have to kind of pick and choose your battles and set limits on yourself so you don't end up spending three years designing the campaign, not playing it. Unless you're going to throw in like <laughs> the mating fauna, rituals. fauna coming in. Longfish. Yeah. They're like, they're extremely, <laughs> they're extremely <laughs> violent when they're during, when, during, during mating, the mating season. season. Yeah. <laughs> Just reminds me of Ace Ventura, like the little <laughs> shaking bush. Angry gorilla in the background. <laughs> oh my Sorry, God. it's their mating season. It's their mating season. <laughs> in our case, we have a bunch of world building already done. Since we have developed more of Innsmouth's lore throughout the podcast, we have started to fill out the Carcosan sector of Cementum Obscurus. Our community has also helped to fill in some of that lore, adding their own worlds or suggesting weird locations and occurrences that might exist within the Carcosan sector itself. Also, the examples we have used in the past creative writing episodes all get tossed into that mix. So if we talk about something in an episode and we brainstorm out some weird planet, it's somewhere in the Carcosan sector because we already wrote it from a strange world to a space Hulk. It's something that we can always use, pull out of that toolbox in the future. A lot of our tips come out of the basic rule that anything that we come up with gets saved for some future use. It's a great tip for any world building or writing. A lot of people will give you the advice when you start writing to write down your dreams. If you wake up in the middle of the night and you have a weird idea, immediately write it down. This is that same sort of idea. Now, Marky and I are bullshitting during a production meeting and we're trying to toss around a planet that we want to bring to you guys. And we decide it's going to be a water world that's a penal colony. And then Tom brings up a couple of different things about how that water world's economy works. That's all stuff that we now have. We can name that planet. 
We can throw it in the Carcosin sector. And when we need a relic from a penal world or we need a unit from a penal world, we have something we can immediately pull from. Yep. You bank them. Exactly. It's like, I don't know if it touches on this, but the, the little bit I've helped develop, you already had a, a legend on the subsector of what kind of planets. And I decided to fill in those types of planets. Yep. And, uh, and that legend on the subsector map is the pretty standard Warhammer 40k legend. I just made yeah, our own I, icons. I, mean, <laughs> I just went, this is what I'm going to go with. Well, this needs this in the subsector. Haven't gotten any details on the planets, but based on what the legend says, pretty self-explanatory what it is. Exactly. Uh, actually, one thing I was wondering, do we have a, uh, a marker for my fleet? Like, do you no, have we a don't. Map marker that just just to show that it's here, or is you got to tell me. Yeah, you got to either tell me where its homeworld is, or you got to tell. Yeah, you when like, you tell me where it is, I'll add be it in the Carcosin sector. So I was just thinking it'd be funny just to like put it in as like a random spot and <laughs> just like put <laughs> it in between two planets. <laughs> Fleet. So we do we do know why you're there. <laughs> yeah, loot. <laughs> uh, teaser. It'll be in the opening crawl for stream episode one. Mm-hmm. It's not just loot. There's a story, I know. <laughs> Through the development of the subsector Kendari with Mullins, one of our longstanding patrons and community members, we set aside an entire region of space called the Rot Worlds. At the time, we had no idea what it would be used for, if or if it would ever be used. It was just an idea that this cluster of worlds was an endless war zone against the forces of Nurgle. What the Rot Worlds became was a great place to set a campaign in. This is also an example of using what you know, which was one of our how to get started in creative writing tips. Warhammer 40k lore is littered with references to fringe zones, halo stars, eastern fringes. All of these pockets of space were either it's too wild or too dangerous to settle, it's too unknown, or it's constantly beset with grinding conflict. The fun then becomes the why of it all, and it's a great focus for this level of world building. We aren't focused on fleshing out an entire sector or even an entire planet. We have a clutch of six uncharted and unexplored worlds set in a dangerous zone most people just avoid. In fact, more traditional world building has been done by Mullins for the war world of Troxen 7, which borders the Rot Worlds, than we've actually done for the Rot Worlds themselves. Just laid out, all of the background lore on the rot worlds. There's six planets. They're somehow all connected. They're really dangerous. No one goes there. <laughs> Done. World Fair. building over. <laughs> Fair no, enough. The thing is, it doesn't have Fair to be enough. a thesis paper length. You know, you can go it, as in depth. It on does. It. Oh yeah, but <laughs> but you know, it doesn't it can, have to be. It can be as simple as like it fits on a little cocktail napkin, like. That's fine. Exactly. That's as long as you just nail down your ideas. This world sucks. Number one. This world sucks. Number two. Number two. This, this world, world sucks because it's hot. This world sucks because it's cold. This world sucks because there's a plague. Done. I'm thinking. I'm thinking. <laughs> this world that, sucks because it's in, covered in sand. Right? <laughs> wow. Hey, Anakin, slow down there. I'm thinking of a, the way that Marky was everywhere. The way that Marky was starting out, though, I was thinking a half baked. Fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, you're cool, fuck you, fuck you, I'm out of here. <laughs> like, this world sucks and swallows, that's a Slanesh world. <laughs> yeah, which one's that? 
We don't come to this one. I, we don't go to that one. We don't Whoa. come at this one. Whoa. <laughs> we got a little hot in here, boys. <laughs> in this case, these six worlds have been named. Their little chunk of the Kundari subsector has been mapped, and we have developed just enough additional information to satisfy the needs for the campaign, while also hinting at, a, at the survey work that the Imperium would have done as a natural course as they settled the area. These six worlds are all jungle death worlds orbiting a massive gas giant in the system's habitable zone. Evidence of ancient terraforming was detected by exploratory probes and forces, but each world proved to be more deadly than worthwhile. Essentially, they're too hard to colonize, so there's not really a reason to colonize them. And that does happen. The Imperium goes, eh, maybe we'll move here later. Oh, yeah. At- I mean, that was the Tau. Exactly. The, eh, be- not, wor- not an issue, but we'll, we'll come back. <laughs> yeah, they just become another footnote in the Mechanicus or Administratum's ledgers. They may be useful at some point in the future, but they're not really worth it right now. So let's move on. Like the Tau worlds. Mm-hmm. Since that hazy time, the exact date has been lost. These worlds have become home to feral human and feral orc populations. Lacking the means to get off their worlds, the Imperium has largely decided to ignore these populations, letting them war with and kill one another off. Although the oddity that all of the planets had somehow become infested with what seemed like the same feral tribes was also noted. It hardly seemed a pressing concern in light of more pressing matters, such as securing the subsector governor's personal supply of glad snuff. Very important. Mm-hmm. Higher on the priority list. Like fairy dust? High on the priority list. I agree. It's powder, It's powdered gladstone mixed in with your snuff, man. Come on. Angel mm-hmm. dust. ECP. The rot worlds became a problem after the coming of the Cicadrix Maledictum, when a warp storm formed near the edge of the system. This wouldn't have been an issue of much note, except rumors of the Death Guard began to be whispered in the neighboring system of Troxen. But before the subsector Governor Augustus Ramir could further investigate, the rot world of Troxen 7 was invaded by feral human barbarian hordes. These barbarians were armed with simple-bladed weapons, such as axes and swords, clad in furs of jungle cats and the bones of defeated orcs, but pretty much nothing else. It was even uncommon for these warriors to be seen in battle carrying shields or wearing helmets. They often simply relied on their massive two-handed weapons, which had been designed over generations for killing feral orcs. What should have been a fast, bloody, and extremely one-sided conflict, however, became a massacre in an unexpected way. Although facing the discipline... What's up? I was going to say, these these sound like digging knobs. <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, a yeah. lot of ways. They're just humans who have grown up, you know. You're right. Got, it does sound like digging knobs. You've got 20 generations of humans who have been fighting 20 generations of feral orcs. There's they're, they're, That's a society. They get, they yeah. get big. True story. These are the digging knobs. Yeah, yeah. And digging knobs, for anybody who doesn't remember our other episode, whatever number. <laughs> Marky, hit us with the number. Uh, episode 54. That one. Uh, so I wonder if that's 54. true. <laughs> <laughs> it sure it's not it. episode that's sixty-nine. Doesn't matter. We're going with that one. It's fifty-four. Nah, I think it was like I think it was like twelve or thirteen. Yeah, but we're going fifty-four. On. But Diganobs <laughs> are humans who essentially think they're orcs. Yep. Yep. Paint themselves green. 
yeah, go fight melee. Yeah, things like that. I want to dig a knobs army, dude. That be would hilarious. be dope. Just, it's just one of those. I mean, cat a chance. <laughs> yeah, right. It's one of those like little lost pieces of lore that we should we we definitely are digging into in the future. Oh yeah, that would be a fun army to like just have as a uh, like a house army for the for the channel yeah. or something. Just a random dig a knobs army. <laughs> <laughs> oh, speaking of, I told these guys, I think I told our patrons, I'm going to make I'm going to make a bunch of people mad right now. Um I'm going to reveal something that the patrons heard last time, but um I'm <gasps> thinking about buying the lion and specifically replacing his head with like a skull, like a mechanical skull and making him the leader of the Legion of the Damned project that we keep talking about and never start. Yeah. Oh, like give him a, <laughs> like a mecha- like a servo skull make- kind of looking head. Yeah, make him um fuck. Help me out. Night Rider. Ferris? No, the the Primarch Ferris of Ferris Manus, the 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 potential Primarch of the, the Lost and the Damned. Yeah. Legion of the Damned. Legion of the Damned. Yeah. Thank you, Marky. And is that cuz he died first? I know that's I, no, super I, topic I, for I, everything else. I just, Legion of, Legion of the Damned is getting the, just like Digging Knobs, Legion of the Damned will get their own episode. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So all dope, and I know I kind of get excuse me the gist of it. I just I thought there was yeah. like more reason why people suspected Ferris. That as... there probably is. I don't really know a super large amount about it. It was just the thing that we had kicked around. The whole okay. reason it came up was it was the thing we kicked around as being our like house army, the army that traveled with us to like conventions. Right, would right. be the Legion of the Damned. But all right. So, to get back on track here, although they face the disciplined last fire of veteran PDF troops, the barbarians, many carrying the blessings of Grandfather Nurgle, ignored all but the most grievous of wounds. Some even clawed their way back to their feet and attacked with teeth and clawed hands long after their bodies should have been declared dead. Here and there on the battlefields of Troxen Seven, a single Death Guard legionnaire would stride among the charging barbarians, leading their crazed cultists as city after city on the world fell. No ships had been seen in the skies of the Troxen system. However, suddenly these forces just arised as if flies drawn to a rotting corpse. And the system bent itself to one purpose, to hold Troxen 7, a strategic world at the mouth to the rest of the Troxen system at all costs. Yep, Death Guard just showing up. Love it. Like one death, there's 300 screaming barbarians and one legionnaire. That's all they need. And the entire PDF force or guard force falls because primarily because these barbarians are taking fucking last fire to their unarmored bodies and continuing to charge. And they just keep coming. Yeah, and a two-handed battle axe is going to much outweigh the effectiveness of fixed bayonets. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Fixed bayonets Especially once is they hit the ranks. improvised spear. That's all a bayonet yeah. is. And as these barbarians win a conflict, they're obviously going to pick up especially the more devastating weapons that they encounter. So, like, flamers are probably the first thing. Because barbarians aren't thinking strategically. They're thinking what damages the most. So they're going to pick up flamers, they're going to pick up las cannons, they're going to pick up rocket launchers. Anything that makes a big, impressive amount of damage is what they're going to gravitate towards first. And the more times they win, the harder they are to fight. And there's poxwalkers and zombies with them. 
So it's just this like wave. It's this yeah. wave that should be easily defeated that's not easily defeated. And it turns Troxen 7 into a war world. And Troxen 7 separates the Troxen system from the rot worlds. It's the it's the planet on the edge. If you listened to our Mobian domain and Dark Tide episode, we talked about how the planet of I almost said Alpharius Prime. Um Tertium. Tertium, Tertium yeah. is the hive. What's the planet? The planet that Tertium is on, the system that Tertium is in, basically, yeah, I don't remember is, anymore. There's a there's a fringe war going on, and the system is stopped from expanding because of the fringe world. But the fringe is stopped from expanding into the system because of the fringe war. And this is the same thing. Troxen Seven, for whatever reason, astronomically sits in an area that's the only a lot like the. Um, the Cadian Gate. It's an area between the Rot Worlds and the Troxen system, and it's one of the only passages that's really easy to travel. Or maybe there's a different reason. We'll have to find out. So speaking of that, unknown to the Imperium, Valdec 2, the only planet of the Rot Worlds to have ever hosted an Imperial settlement, is actually an ancient Eldari maiden world. Although, in the log absence of its Exodite Wardens, the planet became a death world of massive dinosaurs and deadly carnivorous plants. Additionally, all the system's other worlds have been terraformed by the Eldari sometime after their civilization's fall. Since the area of space now designated as the Carcosan Sector is located near the edge of the galaxy and was at one point far removed from the influence of the Imperium. This clutch of worlds is also rich in minerals that could be forged into waystones or soul stones, and these minerals could be used to encourage the growth of new wraithbone. However, the craft world that had been connected and set to foster these worlds fell to an orc wall. While the orcs moved on after ransacking the craft world, they left it a ghost ship, drifting endlessly through the void. And eventually... The craft world became infested with feral orcs. These feral orcs coming from the spores that were left during the combat. These orcs accidentally activated one of the webway portals and then spread to Valdec 2, overcoming the human settlers that were there and obviously leading to the human barbarians. The rest of the planets in the rot world are similarly all connected by webway portals to one another which allowed first the feral human barbarian descendants of those early settlements to spread without the use of starships, and as the orc presence grew from generation to generation, the orcs just chased them. Essentially, they don't really know how to turn these webway portals on and off, so the webway portal get turned on, and then they okay, they just walk to the next world. Just walk through it. And so, <laughs> as far as they're concerned, they're not even leaving their planet. And if you want to know how they're getting to Troxen 7, maybe there's another one. Or maybe it's Death Guard Chicanery. We don't know. A little bit of both. <laughs> it's always a little bit of both. So that's the world building of where all of this takes place with a sprinkle of why all of it's starting to happen. But it doesn't lay out the antagonist. And that's because we don't really have one yet. We do. What we do have, we do have an antagonist. We're just not telling you. We're spoiler-free zone. What we do have is an inciting incident, and that's the arrival of the Dirge of Eternity, a space hulk of mostly ancient Necron-tier origin 
that somehow contains the ruins of both a lost Primarch's battle barge and an Ark Mechanicum, a prize that sends the entire sector scrambling for even a glimpse of what it might hold. It's ugly. We know that. <laughs> hey, man, I like my sketch. <laughs> Excuse me, sir. It's, uh, it, it is a sight to behold. Sure. Yeah. You don't know what direction it can go in. <laughs> you don't yes. know if it's going forward it's or space. reverse. It's every direction. It doesn't in follow spa- the rule space, of maps. In space, no one can hear your direction, Marky. In, in space, no <laughs> one can see your turn signal. No one can see it. <laughs> yeah, you have to think three-dimensional, not two. That's no turn signal. <laughs> what do you mean he's firing on us? <laughs> you know, you know the, the worst-paying job in the entire Imperium, right? Plasma. The poor guy who had to refuel install the plasma reactor. The, I was going to say the poor guy that had to install the turn signals in the Dirge of Eternity. <laughs> or no, wait, that's the most thankless job, not the most thankless. <laughs> You're a thankless. Oh, <laughs> he's like installing it. It's like they're not even going to fucking use they're it. They're never going to use this. Why am I even here, man? Right. Where did I'm I leave go, my. <laughs> I'm going to go back to my job at the BMW factory installing turn signals there. Yeah, Where's maybe my... they get more use. <laughs> <laughs> Where's my turn light fluid? <laughs> Probably over breaker? there next to your breaker, breaker fluid, fluid and your light bulb repair oh, kit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> in the, it's in the aisle over from the muffler bearings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah oil changes am i right <laughs> did, did wow. we get wait, wait 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 did we get to the point where you don't know what we're talking about anymore is that what just happened <laughs> no <laughs> it's next to the oh id 10 t form mm-hmm. it actually goes like the ID to the top, <laughs> yeah, ID ten T, which is actually stored in a completely separate building building than the DMBA five five form. You you have to yeah, <laughs> wow. you have to keep them at least you have to keep them at least K eighteen away from each other. Or yeah, look at that, look at that thing, you Patreons, so they can see it. Yeah, it's a beautiful. You guys, you guys are bitches. That thing's magnificent. If you don't complain about gets, it. If you don't know what any of these forms are, it's a management thing. Go ask your manager what it is, and he'll tell you. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> or write or, or listen to what Kevin said and write the letter, write the letters and numbers down and read it. I was actually um, so pretty advancing, proud of that one. Uh, I had never actually heard was, that, that before. Good. I pulled that one out of my own. <laughs> that was pretty good. One. <laughs> that was good. That was good. The IDT10 is pretty. ID10, is pretty good. ID10T has been around ID, for a long time. Yeah, ID10T is a pretty good one. Yeah, you and you can adapt that one because you can be like, oh, just get me the ID10T cable. <laughs> like if you're yeah. working with computers, <laughs> fucks with people all the time. Off off topic story. In my Way day job, topic. in my day job, somebody at our company asked about one of the customer service emails I was dealing with, and I said, I'm I'm almost at the point where I'm going to send them that the problem with the kite is is exists an ID10T at, error. No, I, it it exists at the K18 mark, uh, and the person I was talking to is like, "What's the K18 mark?" And I'm like, "Well, traditionally, the K18 mark means that the problem exists 18." inches away from the keyboard in this particular case i mean 18 feet away from the fucking kite yep. <laughs> like, and they're like oh and i'm like yeah the person doesn't know what they're doing that's the aggravation i have right now mm-hmm. anyway 
So advancing the story within a campaign structure. Like we laid out in our Crusade episode, there are a few different ways to design a campaign. They have largely been divided into two categories. Linear ladders. These would be the railroading adventures people complain about in tabletop role-playing games. And branching narratives, which are much more like the sandbox tabletop RPG method that you might encounter. While both have their uses, it's often more fun and engaging to play around with the idea of branching narrative trees. In the case of our community campaign, it allows us to track our Discord community game results so that Marky and I can twink how the streamed events play out in the future. It's important to point out that both campaign structure and scenario and story arcs are really heavily linked. So even though we mentioned them as two different pieces, we're going to kind of talk about them in an overlapping way. As we've mentioned a couple of times, Chuck and I are the ones who sat down and designed a lot of this campaign. However, <laughs> we are now at a point where I Chuck helped. has done all he can, but since he's playing in the stream, we have removed his power, and now Marky and I are in control. <laughs> the dirge is going to just shit on you, motherfuckers. <laughs> and, and, and as we talk about, about horror movie influence stuff, here we go. That's, it's Marky and I. <laughs> As a quick refresher, though, if you need one, a linear ladder is incredibly straightforward. Battle or mission one progress to battle or mission two. That progresses into battle or mission three and so on. The story advances between battles regardless of the who wins or who loses. The battles are set before the campaign and they play in order regardless of what's happening. Uh, it's a video game structure. Mario goes from world 1-1 to world 1-2 to world 1-3, and no matter how many times you play, that's what Mario does. No matter how many times Mario dies or powers up, it never changes. That's essentially the idea. It's a linear story. That's not going to be us. Yeah, not us. As an example of a branching narrative, players might meet in an opening battle. If If the attacker wins, the players move to outcome one. If the defenders win, the players move to outcome two. If the attacker wins on outcome one, the players move to outcome A. However, if the attacker loses, the players move to a second large battle. The same happens on the other side. If the defender wins twice, players move to outcome B. If the defenders lose, again, you branch back to that main battle structure. Basically, instead of a ladder or stacked battles, you have an opening battle that feeds into two choices, and the outcome of those games either feed back into another battle, in which both forces are on equal footing again, or if the force wins twice in a row, the battle advances with them gaining greater favor, at least as it suits the story. They may not, when we say they gain greater favor, we don't necessarily mean that they get like 2,000 extra points to play the next game with. We just mean that the story benefits them. In an example, or boons from the chaos gods. Right. As an example, if the campaign story you're telling is the fall of a castle, say you're telling the, 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 the fall of Castle Angor, and the opening battle takes place in the Dead Marshes, and the attacker is an orc player, the defender is Space Marines. Now, Space Marines lose, the orcs advance. So because the orcs advance, you go from fighting in the marshes to fighting in the township or the city that's right outside this castle monastery. The suburbs, essentially. Right, essentially. 
So it's a city, it's a, it's a mild city fight. And then if the orcs win again, then the orcs are assaulting the fortress monastery itself. Now, if the orcs win the first one, but then lose the second one, the space marines manage to push them back to an even further outlying settlement. Maybe uh, the space marines essentially have home field advantage. And you can tweak it a little bit by, you know, the attacker, the winner of the last game gets to choose, becomes the attacker and gets to choose what side of the battlefield they start up on. Or maybe they get to place three pieces of terrain for every one piece of terrain or something like that. You can field it in that way. But mechanically, both forces in this structure are still the same. They don't have to be, but in what we just described, they stay the same. So ours will be pretty simple. It's going to be mainly, mainly Imperium and Chaos. Everybody, yeah, everybody's, well, the stream will be mainly Imperial and Chaos, but yes. everybody has a reason for being there. Yep. Mm-hmm. You never know. Necrons might show up for no reason. Good. You never know. On the community campaign side of the Rot Wars, the first battle is called Planetfall, and it takes place on the world of Crove's Garden. Here is where we will dip into and mix in the scenarios and story arc portion of this. The attackers are looking to establish a foothold on the worlds that can act as a staging ground to launch missions to the Dirge of Eternity. The defenders are looking to hold their territory and repel any forces trying to make Planetfall. If the attackers win the planetfall mission the narrative branch will move to a mission where the attackers move to fully secure their forward operating base while the defenders will become a guerrilla force trying to force them from their land if the defenders win the planetfall mission the narrative branch will move to a mission where the attackers are now making a desperate attempt to tactically retreat from the world while the defenders are moving to destroy them completely we're keeping the second mission currently under wraps, but this gives you an idea of our methodology and how we're thinking. Each set of three missions will satisfy a major part of the scenario, cueing Marky and me to release the next little bit of overall story arc. At the same time on stream, the players, Chuck and Kev being two of them, will go through similar set of missions on a similar branching narrative, with Marky and I looking at each of the community game mission results in order to change the missions and narrative that you guys see on stream. As an example, if an overwhelming number of Imperial victories are won by the community, one of the players using an Imperial faction on stream might get 500-point reinforcement of Imperial fists for either the first or last two turns of one of their games. They get a little bit of bonus. This is this is called an asymmetrical force deployment. It's something that we can play with, that you can play with. We'll talk about it a little bit more. You got drop pods, right, Chuck? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When was the last time you used a drop pod? You don't use um, them well, how long ago has it been since I met you? About three years ago? Yeah. So... There you go. <laughs> trace years. Tra- is, tra- is Trace drop pods like Trace Leches? It's crunchier. Trace drop is. Dude, I, I love <laughs> drop pods. <laughs> so do I. Dude, I, I was using drop pods when I first so started playing 40K, and it was always my favorite way to deploy my army. No surprise. Yeah, not, not even like, because I know it was a little cheesy back in the day, these drop pods. Uh, but just the uh, just the you know ha- how it happened, and you know I use Stern Guard because I always thought special issue ammo was like super dope. It is, yeah. 
And that, again, that's why I transitioned into, uh, you know, Death Watch, just because the whole idea of Stern Guard and Drop Pods and Death Watch, like, it just, it rang, rang true with how, how I play. So. Yeah, I yeah. love it. Love it. You ask me what I got, I'll bring it. <laughs> All right. Yeah. That's, that's if, see, and that, that's what's going to be interesting with the campaign. I don't know if we're jumping ahead, but there, there will be times when maybe Kevin's not p- playing the Imperium. Maybe I am. Yeah. Yeah, because, we'll find out. Because somebody else will have to be playing their Death Guard. Mm-hmm. That's not me. No, that's not you. Somebody else will have to play Death Guard or other the, things. The Ruganist. Hmm? Well, and then I've also got Votan. Not very many, but Votan can show up. That's a possibility. Yep, and yep. those are not Imperial. Yeah, they're technically Xenos. They are. It's gum. With all of that in mind, more on the scenario and story arc side of the coin, we have to ask a few questions about the campaign and the games being played. Most importantly, why do the various factions of 40k give a shit? To satisfy this, we design and tweak the missions we will have our players use, both in the community and on stream, and we designed a few faction categories. In the Planetfall mission, the attacking forces will be, this is a faction category, the Imperium, the Jukari, the Eldar Corsairs, the Gene Stealers, the Gene Stealer Cults, excuse me, the Necron, the Tau, the Tyranids, the League of Votan, and all Chaos forces except for Nurgle. Their motivation is to secure a landing site so a forward base can be established. The defending factions or sub-factions, not, not sub-factions, the defending faction umbrella is over all Nurgle-aligned forces, Eldari Craftworld, Exodites, Yanari, and Harlequins, and the Orcs. In general, they all want to deny the invaders and disrupt their efforts. However, each army also has its own personal motivations for being there. To be clear, we're not saying that all attacking forces are aligned with one another, and we're not saying all defending forces are aligned with one another. We're just saying that if you're taking an Imperium army to play against a Nurgle force, you now know who's attacking and who's defending in the mission structure. Mm -hmm. To get on to the personalized faction details. Examples of this would be the Mechanicus wants the Arc Mechanicum tech that's locked into the Dirge of Eternity. The Eldari know about the webway portals and want to protect them or destroy them or hide their existence at all costs. The Necrons believe the Dirge contains some lost Pharon, while the Votan believe it contains an Ancestor Core. So all of these different factions have reasons for wanting to get to the Dirge. It just happens to be in a chaos-controlled part of space, really close to the Imperium-controlled space. Yeah, and if you have like uh, two defending forces or two attacking forces, you can always just use the generic roll-off and choose yep. who's the attacker, who's the defender. It's like if you're both, a, if you were both on like the attacking side of the umbrella, it's like okay, well these guys got here first, established a base, and now you're like, well, I need to establish a base, so I'm going to push them you know, push them out or destroy them, vice versa. You're two defenders, you're just on the planet, and you're it's a normal skirmish between forces yeah. that are already on that planet. Or like the Eldari show up, and there's a bunch of orcs there because the orcs are like, oh, there's a bunch of feral orcs here, and then they're going to fight because they're going to fight. Yep, you can pretty much just hand wave most of it. It's pretty... We tried to give you enough structure so that you could kind of agilely jump from foot to foot. 
one might say nimbly bimbly from tree to tree. <laughs> While using these two steps and mixing them together quite a bit, the design process allows you to start playing with a lot of unique factors that make the scenario more engaging. Stories in games are often more rewarding when they have stakes that are stacked relatively high and the outcome isn't guaranteed. Sure, you can slug out game after game in a campaign or a crusade, just like it's match play, but that isn't the fun of narrative. This is where you can use the missions to do things that aren't normally seen in matched or even open play. Stuff like tossing out primary and secondary objectives altogether, making up asymmetrical objectives, and even playing around with asymmetrical army sizes. Maybe a mission comes down to who can reach the Relic of Power and activate it first, or can the defender survive four rounds so they can escape? You can even design last stand missions where an entire army is going to die. The question is, just how glorious will that death be? Yeah, something I've always kind of wanted to implement is when you play your armies and you find out who wins, just, you know, normal normal playing is you ante up a, a bit, essentially. So whoever wins uh, gets a bit from their opponent. So, like, if it's a... You know, Imperial Fist, like Space Marine Head, you give it to your opponent after you lose. Just uh, everybody has bits lying around, and it's always been cool. I, like, I do did... not. <laughs> I, I know I did that with Kevin one time with like a Ick, with one Ick of my that shotguns. Th- yeah, yeah, that's how that's how Billy got his gun originally, yeah, shotgun, yeah. and then essentially how he also got his claw. But we we that's made right. him work for it. He he played and. In one, it was we did we did the uh, death watch. Was it after we were on the same team, or was it after we went against each other and it just uh, we went against each other? That, it was a, yeah, you is guys that the did one a where we went against each other. Mission. Yeah, that yep. one. Yeah, the training mission one. And then uh, after that, he was awarded the shotgun for valiant service. Yeah, and then so, uh, um, I, and then after he killed Gaz in combat, we're like, all right, he's getting a claw. He's turning into Yarick now. <laughs> he's getting up, upgrades. Yep. So I, I've always liked that that idea, and it, it's it's a fun little thing because I know everybody. A lot of people have bits lying around, and you don't have to do it. I mean, uh, if your opponent is willing to do it, you know, awesome. Even better if you're the only one willing to do it, and they win. You know, give them a bit. It, it'd be like a cool little thing they can add it to their base they don't they don't have to accept the bit it's just a you know fun little thing i know i have a ton of bits lying around and i just give you know kevin or matt or chuck a, a space marine arm and they can attach it to like you know one of the backpacks of their chaos marines or the tau can you know sh- have a third arm shift out of his ass and hold a pulse <laughs> rifle I, I don't know it's, you know you do you can do or, with it or what there you could will. be or there could be a dwarf from Ichbard's army that's strung up behind my Necron leader. Yeah, or you can have, you know, you can buy a, a Eisenhorn model and stand your Tau commander on top of it. Something, <laughs> you know, something like that. I'd have to buy like five. I've, I've, <laughs> killed, him, I've killed him a couple of times. I don't know about that. Rugen, <laughs> Rugen on, clones, on, they're on, clones. On that, Rugen has a uh, Hellbrute that has trophies in the tentacles and you know, all these different things that it's killed, like, out of the blue, and people have been like, I don't believe that just happened. Mm-hmm. It's fun. It's definitely Lots fun. Trophies. Yeah, so I always thought that was kind of like a cool little mechanic of, 
you know, like people in card games, they ante up a card. That's, you know, that's kind of what I was thinking. It sounded like old card game style where like, Oh, you lose. Here's the, here's the card that I was giving up. Yeah. So I always thought it was a, a cool thing to try and mess around with and something you can implement into your army. That is like a trophy, something that wasn't just a, you know, match play game where you fight each other. So a shameless plug. If you're a Patreon member, you can check out the video. You can see Billy see in Billy. all his glory right now. Yeah, you can see his uh, Death Watch shotgun or his, uh, it's Billy Black Claw. Yeah, Billy Black Claw. Or Billy Big Cock. <laughs> uh, it's the Black Claw. It 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 empowers the individual with uh, to be well endowed. <laughs> um, Mentally, if heard, not physically. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, you it, Chuck looked at me like, what? Yes, it's the Big Claw. <laughs> I, I was gonna say I haven't. I, I thought I shared this story with you. Yeah, Chuck. I thought you heard it. But yeah. my 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 what do, you, what do you call it? Conjugator. You know, takes a minute. Broken. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your it's your the, conjugal uh, visitor. For, for the, works about as often as a McDonald's <laughs> ice cream machine. For those of you who haven't heard the story, the the story of Billy Blackclaw. He uh, killed a war boss, uh, Blackclaw, and. The Black Claw is a relic for orcs that uh, spreads their their endowedness. Uh, what do you call it? Uh, their spurs. spores. Uh, it it it's spreads the spores like in a in abundance for whoever, whoever has the claw. <laughs> yeah, so they're like more brutal, and they they spread spores like crazy. Whoever whoever has the Black Claw. So, so when Billy attached it to himself, instead of you know, spreading spores. It just, his cock grew 10 times the size that day. (laughs) And so he was now known as Billy black, Billy black claw or Billy big cock. And that's just, you know, it's just kind of the the story behind it. And considering he has mechanical legs, cause he got cut in half. I'm imagining like some weird Tetsuo Akira situation. Well, he needs the robotic legs to hold up the massive (laughs) cock he has between them. It's like a, or prosthetics it was an enhancement because you know normal human legs couldn't hold him up <laughs> when he lost his legs he didn't he only you know it was he it was, was flopping the, around on his it, dick yeah was, <laughs> just, just like an inchworm pulling him across the battlefield <laughs> it was like a, it was like but, a pogo but lost, stick but he lost his legs first he did he did so he was already well endowed for to begin with so <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Dave, I don't know. You might be muted. <laughs> there we go. Right. I was saying uh, what actually killed the Moloch was choking on his massive balls. <laughs> it got his legs, and then it was like, <laughs> it's like, holy hell, what was that? Ah, shit. <laughs> Bit off more than he could chew. Right. So, without getting too deep into spoiler territory, we have fun deep. planned for you guys in the community campaign. <laughs> That's right, deep. And some designed for your watching pleasure. Asymmetrical objectives like secure the VIP, hunt the relic, and defend at all costs. We are also diving deep into the entire history of GW's released missions. So, expect to see game types and battle layouts that herald from second or third edition and every edition up until now. Remember, nothing in this entire process requires you to design crusade or campaigns 
just around the rules in the current release book. I, I think we've mentioned this a couple of times. It doesn't even have to be something that has any connection to Warhammer. You can decide that you want to play on a six foot by eight or a, an eight foot long by four foot wide dinner table and bring out as much terrain as you want and have a, God forbid, three-way engagement, which I know GW was very surprised you could do because it had never been done before until they did it on Warhammer Plus. Yeah, that, was not, my grind, that was my grind my gears thing for this. this yeah, not like, to mention kidding me? Right? doing things like, uh, didn't we like City do Fight. Like a bunch of times? Yeah. A bunch, <laughs> right? We did a bunch of three-ways. <laughs> We're doing one right now. Mm. Sorry. <laughs> Beg your, beg your pardon. So you were saying something about city fight, Marky? I, yeah, I mean, I, I was, I was. He had flashbacks to the last episode right now. <laughs> I don't know if this is what you're getting at, but city fight is a system that isn't necessarily super used anymore. City fight terrain was incredible. Terrain back in the day was dense enough that all of this like nice firing lanes for match play wasn't a thing. No, it yeah. was not. They had rules for like roads where your vehicles would go faster on the road. Like you'd get like an extra two inches of movement or something like that for tanks. Three inches. Yeah, I kind of yeah. missed that. And if you had Fleet of Foot, because you were Eldari, Necron, or something else, or, or Fleet of Claw, Tyranids, you got six inches, or up to six inches. I think you, I think you got three assured, and then you could roll D3 to see if you could go farther. There, there are some cool. crazy rules. And that's, that's the other thing. You know, I, Marky had come up with a scenario when Beast and I had played my Exodite Eldar versus his uh, Knights. Marky had come up with a rule that every, was it every round, or... It wasn't every round. It was at the beginning of each player's turn that you did the meteor strike. How did that work? Do you remember that? Yeah, so essentially what I did was I took a, a scatter dice from 5th edition, and I rolled it in whatever unit or area it was pointed at. That unit would uh, large have, blast template. have a large blast <laughs> template deviate on top of it uh, D6 inches, and whatever was hit took a mortal wound. If it yeah. was a night, it took 10 mortal wounds. Oh. And, and we just played it out. And that's just, you know, I lost, I lost a... I think it was 2d6 mortal wounds, sorry, for a unit. Yeah, I lost an entire unit, like, round one. <laughs> and it, it adds randomness to the game. It, it brings up, the, I think, the scenario that Marky had come up with us for to play, for us to play in that narrative game was that the planet was, like, falling apart. Um... Or like That's the moon cool. was crashing into it or something. So it's just, it's this stuff that you can play with. And it doesn't have to be Warhammer related. You know, if there's something really neat that you've encountered in a and d game and you want to do it, figure out how to pull it over. You know, maybe you want to do, maybe there's an item on the board. And not, not that this, this, this is not something that's in Warhammer 40k, but this is definitely something that's been in Warhammer Fantasy Battle. Maybe there's a relic on the board that when it's picked up, it's going to give a big bonus to the unit that has it. Fucking run with it. Run with it. And, and two, with all, the whole world building, I, I know I mentioned it, I think, before in a Patreon thing before, but everybody that's new that's listening, you could hunt down and try and figure out what 80s movies and cartoons the omadon system the planets are from one of them is a more recent one because uh rugen helped me with it but uh <clears throat> that's part of the whole thing too i think ryan's getting at is like the inspiration of the draw for stuff it's like 
you, you can take things from other areas and it's like, hey, we need to name planets. Yeah. So based on what type of planet it was is what the name it was it got. And we do this in our narrative games, and I'm sure it's going to happen during this crusade, um, during the Rot Wars. And you guys, we encourage you guys as players, especially if you're playing with a little group or if you're playing with people who know what's going on, you know, if you're playing with a group who's in the know, don't don't bring somebody in and spring it on them. Well, no, bring somebody in and spring them on first game, but communicate before you do it. If there's a relic like Billy's shotgun or, uh, you know, Beast has a bunch of them where he's got a bunch of like named special weapons for his knights, that could be something that's acquired during the game, you know. For instance, and this will lead into the end game topic, the last topic that we have, the last, not topic, the last uh, point that we have to talk about, that barbarian that's leading this army, that's leading this barbarian Nurgle army, maybe at some point he gets a great unclean one's sword. It's gifted to him. That's not something that a guardsman or whatever you're using might have. Work within the rules of the game. Work with your opponent and let them know this is a special unit. This is a special weapon he has. This is why he has it. As long as it works within the mechanics of the rules of the game, then move forward with it. Another thing that happens with Chaos Champions a lot is as they progress forward through their path, they get more, you know, lore-wise, they get more power. They get more armor. They get more stuff. Mutate. They mutate. And... You can do that with your Space Marine heroes, too, or your Imperial Guardsman heroes as well, or your League of Votan hero as well. The more they progress through their battles, the more honors or the more special stuff they get. And the Crusade system has stuff set up for you to do this, and but don't feel confined to that. You know, Look out to the way that Mordenheim deals with collecting it. Look out to the way that Necromunda deals with collecting loot. If you want to make the loot process part of your experience, make the loot process part of your experience. For for a model aspect of it, what I think is cool, and I've already done it with a Marine that I've I've played with when we were pra- practicing stuff and doing things with Tom's army, is as you play, you can change paint schemes. Well, M- Marines, probably Votan, probably most guard, but you know, there's campaign badge decals. There's yep. things like that you can come up with things for whatever campaign or what you're playing is like, okay, this unit actually made it through it or these actual two dudes never died in this unit. So as you go, they can get different paint schemes, different things added to them. To hash like, marks si- added to the armor marks. for kills. It's, it's like things to make your standard army that you have. Say you already have it painted and you use it in the campaign. This is a way to update your army, to make things stand individually out, to make you know, people look at your army and go, why does it look like that? What what yeah. happened? Like maybe you do a bunch of missions in the campaign, in the community campaign, and you're playing Imperial, let's say, not, yeah, it, you're playing Imperial Guard or you're playing Ultramarines or something, and you don't have a lot of basing detail down yet. You just kind of have what, what f- serve purpose for basing quickly. Now you've done this campaign and you've got an idea and you decide to put a little squashed nurgling on a couple of bases or even like Nurgle ooze on a couple of bases. And people are like, Oh, that's weird. Why do your, why are your ultramarines in this like weird, why do they have these weird Nurgle bases? And then you can launch into, Oh, well I did this campaign and 
you know, good conversation starter. Well, the end game is important in most stories. We've crafted reasons for every faction to be present. And while on the surface, it's pretty much an easy off the shelf reason. The dirge of eternity is a massive glittering prize for those who can claim it. It's often more fun to peel back a few layers and peer deeper into what might motivate those factions for playing out an entire campaign, however. This is also a great time to think about introducing overarching antagonists, be they things or be they people. Their intentions can be sprinkled into the backstory and lore, either being motivations that are identified early in the campaign or surprises and mysteries that have clues that were left throughout the narrative itself. In the case of the Rot Wars, we have some mysteries that will only be revealed as time goes on, but we do have two very obvious antagonistic forces. First off, the human barbarian and traitor guard forces of Nurgle, who swarm like flies over the Rot Worlds themselves and have started to attack the Troxen system, and the Dirge of Eternity itself, which looms like some impossible dark god's fortress, hiding its secrets within its twisted maze. The lives it has claimed are evident by the abandoned spacecraft that litter its hull. And as Marky puts it, most of them are Eldar ships. Because Marky likes to fuck with me. And there's Xeno scum, that's why. Yep. There's a human barbarian who has been gifted or blessed by Nurgle and is leading these forces. And what what is his path? Obviously, you know, some sort of ascent to demonhood because he's able to at least talk to maybe not necessarily order but talk to death guard and he's working with death guard so he's probably not just a normal person and he's obviously leading this traitor guard force that's growing and becoming a problem and is now trying to secure the rot worlds as the conflict that existed in the rot worlds was happening and the dirge of eternity shows up the dirge of eternity's appearance is an inciting incident but the dirge of eternity itself acts as an antagonistic linchpin so even though it's not an antagonist traditionally speaking it is an antagonist by its mere existence it sparks conflict and one of those conflicts is going to be that this barbarian leader barbarian warlord is going to pull their forces back from the troxen seven they're going to leave enough forces on troxen seven to continue being a pain in the ass but they're going to pull enough of their forces back enough of their looted technology back into the rot worlds to try to secure the rot worlds because nurgle also wants the dirge of eternity everybody wants the dirge of eternity and that's the easy thing that's the easy surface level that i mentioned Every single faction in the game, all 20 factions have a reason to care about the Dirge of Eternity, and that's because it is a Space Hulk. And that's enough at the end of the day. Oh, yeah. But we've sprinkled in enough extras as to why one faction might need it more than another. And then, of course, the Dirge of Eternity also hides its own secrets and its own mysteries, some of which Marky and I know very well. Actually, some of it, if you go back and listen to some of our previous episodes, you might catch some hints of what the Dirge of Eternity hides. But the other thing that we get to play with, the other antagonist that we get to play with that Chuck and I develop, as Marky and I develop the overall kind of end game 
so to speak, of the Dirge of Eternity, Chuck and I are developing the end game of this barbarian leader. You know, is this going to turn into a massive demon that has to be defeated? Or is he going to turn into a massive demon? Or are they going to turn into a massive demon? We don't know if it's he or she yet. Or are they going to turn into a massive demon and escape the system entirely and go on to do other things other places? Cause other problems. Yeah, you never know. The Dirge of Eternity could have like this warpstone butt plug. Crazy. <laughs> that is that is not the hint that we talked about. <laughs> oh God! I just got to bring it full circle. That's, that's you got to bring it. It's just like a full circle. <laughs> just like a butthole. It's a circle. That's right. <laughs> yeah, it's gonna be. I, I I think I think the antagonist is gonna be really fun developing. One, the lore, and two. All the different kit bashing that I get oh, to yeah. do. Oh yeah, man, it's it's going to be great. That's, that's the thing, and it's fun. Nurgle is a great, you know, all of the chaos gods are a great antagonist at the end of the day. But Nurgle is a specific, specifically great antagonist to the story. Yeah, we're crafting because one zombies and two like you can play around with stuff like this. We can have normal ass humans with big ass swords. That are surviving against guardsmen with las guns because Nurgle, and we don't have to explain it anymore. Yeah, nobody knows enough. why. That is the excuse. It's Nurgle. Yeah, because Nurgle. In in all his blessings, whatever grandfather wants, I guess he gets. <laughs> That's right. That will wrap it up for this episode of Tales from the Hive. There is a lot more lore behind and intertwined within the campaign that we're developing, and we are getting ready to reveal that both through our stream and the community campaign itself. We'll also be releasing the streamed games as VODs on our YouTube page. So if you find this episode a bit later on, you should be able to catch up on the story or watch the entire thing now. Wants to get involved with our community and see what else is going on? Join us on Discord. There we chat about 40k lore, the hobby, and tactics, plus Age of Sigmar, Warhammer Fantasy Battle, creative writing, video games, role-playing, and so much more. That's also a place that you can immediately get linked in to all of the Rot Wars community campaign events going on now. You can also share your short stories, spooky dookies, and lore with us either here on our email at underthehiveofmadness at gmail.com or jimdarkgaming at gmail.com. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, or at underthehiveofmadness.com. You can also like and review us whether you get your podcast fix. Our home is Spotify, but we are on Apple, Google, Audible, Stitcher, and many, many more, including YouTube. Although YouTube is a little bit lagged behind. I think YouTube, we just released like episode 38. So if you want to stay current, this is where to stay current. We also have a Patreon set up at www.patreon.com slash under the hive of madness. Patreon members get access to video podcasts with minimal editing so you can see our beautiful faces and follow along with what we are looking at on screen while hearing our bloopers in real time. All Patreon levels also get access to our quarterly painting contest. Plus, we have perks at higher levels. So go on over and check that out. Fulfill your need, the need for breakneck speeds, rickets, grav boards. Innsmouth's number one source for tech that straddles the razor's edge of life and death. Live life at the bleeding edge of what's left of your synapses. 
Free-falling into the endless black of a deep razor eye storm, we are the deathless daredevils of rebellion. 665.66UHMR Chemrat Radio. Reminding all of you Chemrats, I've my sins, some ghoulies to keep those dials fixed right here. Same ratty frequency for the same ratty-ass attitude. The meat, they said. The meat is tainted. I didn't mind. I had started to enjoy the taste of long pork, even as I picked it from the claws of my four new shiny arms. I like it. Okay. That's a wrap. Was that, that was creepy? Was that okay? I like it. <laughs>